The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Hey guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh? A redwood forest would be cool. Ski slopes! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. Hi, Brian. Hi, Katie. So I'm going to ask you to play the role of therapist today, Brian, which you often serve for me. My price is right. (laughs) Good. I'm worried about Russia. It seems clear, according to intelligence agencies and Donald Trump himself, that somehow they did meddle in our electoral process. I'm worried about this reboot of our relationship, which on the face of it doesn't sound like a bad idea, but it seems much more than a reboot. It seems like a rekindling. And I don't really understand the pros and cons of a closer relationship with Russia. Now, I'll be your therapist, Brian. Wouldn't be the first time. Are you worried about Russia? And how does that make you feel? (laughs) You know, I am, because nowhere is the change of administration more apparent than in our newfound coziness with the Russians. Uh, Trump has brought in a lot of Putin loyalists to his administration, some of the Americans who are the closest to Vladimir Putin. And Russia, at least over the past 10 years, has been a pretty bad actor on the global stage, invading countries, causing instability, hurting the United States. And so we really wanted to talk to somebody who understood the Russian people, the Russian government from the inside out. Someone with a very interesting personal history He's written a book called Red Notice, a true story of high finance, murder, and one man's fight for justice. Brian, my friends have been raving about this book. And we thought Bill Browder would be a good person to really start to unpack the perils and opportunities of a closer relationship with Russia and someone who really understands who Vladimir Putin is, and what he's all about. So if you're optimistic about a new and mutually beneficial U.S.-Russian relationship, listen to Bill Browder first. Bill Browder, thanks so much for talking with us today. We're thrilled to have you. Great to be here. You have such a fascinating backstory, to say the least, and we're going to share with our listeners this story of intrigue and tragedy that you have been immersed in for the last several years. But... Brian and I thought we would start by asking you about Donald Trump's inauguration. He is now the 45th president of the United States. 
And I just would like to get your reaction to that very fact. Well, it's, it's, it's a true mystery to me what's actually going to happen. Um, I've seen so many different people telling me so many different things. Um, people saying, look at all the, the smart people around him. Everything is going to be great. It's going to be fine. And then I read a tweet that he, that's been written in the middle of the night and I panic. And, and uh, I'm just waiting to see on the issues that I'm most sensitive to what he's going to do. And that, that really relates to Vladimir Putin and Russia. But doesn't it seem like he's quite sympathetic to Vladimir Putin, that Putin clearly made a choice going into Election Day that Trump was going to be his guy? It seems that way. It certainly seems that way from the Russian side. It's, I was just at the World Economic Forum in Davos, and, and the Russians were all, they all had a bounce in their step, and they were all celebrating and smiling and planning for the lifting of sanctions and looking for all sorts of uh, gifts from Donald Trump. Um, but we, we we still don't know if that's actually going to happen. I mean, this may be their own fantasy. Um, I, you know, it's not clear what he's going to do. He he claims to be a big deal maker. Um, uh, I don't know what deal he's going to do and whether there's any deal to be done. I mean, if you really look at it, the Russians are asking for lots of stuff, and um, Putin doesn't have much to offer in return. And so, if Trump really is a deal maker and a good businessman, um, maybe they're not going to get what they're asking for. Bill, you have a very interesting relationship with Vladimir Putin. And for our listeners to understand that, I think we should start at the very beginning. What was a nice guy like you doing in a place like Moscow? <laughs> well, I, I've got a funny, funny story, um, strange story. I come from this family of famous American communists. Um, I was born in, in uh, 1964. And when I was going through my teenage rebellion, I, I looked around and I said, what's the best way that I can rebel from this family of communists? And uh, I figured out that the best best thing to do was to put on a suit and tie and become a capitalist. There was nothing I could do that caused my parents more pain than that. And so I became a capitalist. Um, I went to uh, Stanford Business School and I graduated business school in 1989, which was the year the Berlin Wall came down. And as I was looking around for um, uh, what to do with my life next, I had this epiphany, which was if my grandfather was the biggest communist in America and the Berlin Wall has just come down, I'm going to try to become the biggest capitalist in Russia. And that's what I set out to do. Uh, I think this thing started when you invested about $2,000 in a handful of Polish companies in the early 90s. You made 10 times your money and you called it the financial equivalent of crack cocaine. Where did that lead? <laughs> Well, you have to really understand that if you ever make 10 times your money on investment, it releases a certain chemical in your stomach. And that was my very first investment in my life. And so I, um, I ended up looking for um, what, what could I do next? And um, I ended up with a job um, at Solomon Brothers. At Solomon Brothers, I, um, I started to learn about the Russian market. And what I discovered was that the, when the um, communism ended and President Yeltsin um, became president, uh, he decided he wanted to make Russia into a capitalist country. And the, the way that he wanted to make Russia into a capitalist country was to basically give everything away for free to the people. And they were basically um, giving away the whole country for free. And then after it had been given away, it basically started trading at a, at a, at a slight premium to free, which was still at a, like a 99.9% .9 discount to everything else in the world. And when I saw the prices of Russian stocks at a 99.9% .9 discount, I said to myself, 
God, we should be investing in this stuff. And in fact, you started on your own investing in this stuff as a very young man. Um, how did that go? So I, I, um, I left Solomon Brothers and I, I set up my own company called Hermitage Capital. I moved out to Moscow and it just couldn't have gone better. Um, in the first 18 months of our fund, it was up 850%. It was the single best performing fund in the world um, in 1997. I ended up um, on the uh, cover of various newspapers and magazines. My clients were sending, sending their private jets to entertain me on their yachts. Our fund had grown from $25 million to more than a billion dollars of assets. Wow. And I was all of, I was all, all of 31 years old. Holy cow. So you were living large, weren't you, Bill Browder, <laughs> until it all well, went it, wrong. What happened? Well, <laughs> wah, wah, wah. well at, 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 at that point, so, so I was all of 31 years old. And, and when all these great things are happening to you at that age, you don't have any perspective. But anyone looking at it from afar would have said, wow, that's the biggest sell signal there ever was. And course, I didn't sell. And this was now 1998 in Russia. And they, um, the Russian government um, defaulted on their debt. Uh, they devalued the currency by 75%. And my billion dollars of assets went down 90%. I lost $900 million for my clients. It was the, uh, however many people were entertaining me on their yachts on the way up, sure weren't calling after I lost them 90% of their money. It was a true and absolute Disaster. Those invitations dried up quickly. But uh, <laughs> y- you made a discovery about corruption in Russia as you were trying to rebuild from this, this 90% hole you were in. And, and what did that lead to? Well, so, so what, I, what I discovered was that, that there are these people called the oligarchs. I think most people in the world know what that means, that these like super rich Russian guys. And, and prior to 1998, they had kind of behaved themselves because a lot of fancy bankers from Wall Street were coming around and saying, uh, hey, we can get you some free money on Wall Street. But after the crash, those Wall Street guys had all been fired from their jobs for getting involved with Russia. So there was no more free money for Wall Street from Wall Street for these uh, Russian oligarchs. And they said, heck, if there's no free money, there's no incentive to behave. Why don't we just take everything because there's no laws in Russia to prevent misbehavior? And so the oligarchs embarked on an orgy of stealing, which has been unprecedented in the history of business. They were doing asset stripping, transfer pricing, embezzlement, dilutions, every possible way of stealing money, they were doing it. And I was sitting there with the last 10 cents on the dollar of my client's money. And uh, I, there was, uh, you know, I wasn't going to, I wasn't going to let them steal this stuff from me. And so I ended up um, starting to have uh, wars with the oligarchs to stop them from stealing. Not to sound like an idiot, but can you help me understand who these oligarchs are? You know, I have the this vision of these guys with a lot of gold jewelry and fancy suits, kind of, you know, with toothpicks. I have no idea. Who are these oligarchs? Well, there's not that many of them, first of all. There, there were 22 oligarchs that, that sort of started out this whole process in Russia. And they were basically just guys with the sharp, sharpest elbows and the most um, aggressive tactics um, of anybody in Russia. And what they did was they effectively cornered the market on everything. And so instead of all the assets going to all the people of Russia, which is what that was intended, all the assets ended up in the hands of these 22 guys. And they're not nice guys. Yeah, and you obviously became concerned about the corruption, but you're in Russia I mean, what do you do? There's not really a better business bureau to go to. How do you deal with it if you want to expose corruption in Russia? 
Well, we tried everything. You know, we went to the government and we discovered that the government didn't care. In fact, the people in the government were benefiting. You know, they were on the payroll of the oligarchs. Um, you can't go to the police because they're not policing. You can't go to the parliament because they aren't parliamenting. And um, and so the one thing we figured out that we could do was uh, naming and shaming to publicly embarrass, expose, and, and humiliate these people. And so we had great skills in doing the research on how they were going about doing the stealing. And I knew a lot of foreign correspondents in Moscow. And so, and these guys were always interested in a good oligarch story. And so they would write about it. And, um, and interestingly, when they wrote about it, then the Russian press picked it up. And after the Russian press picked it up, then politicians would start sort of being a little embarrassed, maybe do something about it. And, and, um, in a number of companies that we invested in, um, this naming and shaming ended up um, leading to some of these bad practices stopping and the share prices of the companies that we invested in rising, in some cases, very, very dramatically. And so I developed a, sort of a new business model, which was um, going into bad companies in Russia, um, doing the research, exposing the bad things going on, and then watching the share price rise. And, and we went from $100 million after the crash up to four and a half billion dollars after a few years of doing these these um, exposés, and I thought I was I had the perfect job that anyone could ever have, where I was making money hand over fist for my clients and myself, and and we were also going out and getting the bad guys at the same time, and there was nothing more gratifying than that. And Bill, one of the allies that you uh, discovered in your naming and shaming campaign, at least early on, against the oligarchs was. Vladimir Putin. Can you can you describe who Putin was at that point and, and kind of why you saw him as, as being on your side? Well, um, uh, yeah, so, so Vladimir Putin, so when we first started doing this was just around the time, slightly earlier, but just around the time that Putin had come to power. And when he first came to power, he wasn't really the president of Russia, even though that was his title. He was sort of the president of the presidential administration of Russia because um, that's all he really controlled. The rest of Russia was controlled by these oligarchs, these these uh, 22 guys I was telling you about. So so Putin, um, he wanted to become president of the whole country, not just of his own administration. And so he was looking at ways in which to stop these oligarchs from stealing power from him. So Putin liked you for a while because you were taking power from the oligarchs, and that's what he wanted. But then suddenly, he didn't like you that much. Why? How did, why did things change suddenly? Well, this was the interesting thing. So he was at war with the oligarchs. He was fighting them. But at some point in, in his war, he decided he wanted to make one big drastic move. And so what he did is this was in late 2003. There was the biggest oligarch in Russia. His name was Michael Hordakovsky. He was the owner of a big oil company called Yukos, and he was considered to be the richest man in Russia. And he had been a pain to Putin. And so one day, uh, this guy was on his private jet in Siberia at the airport. And Putin ordered his, his secret police to stop the jet at the airport. And then they raided the jet, grabbed the guy, arrested him, and then put him in jail. Um, and, and then they put him on trial. And, and by the way, in Russia, when you go on trial, um, there's no presumption of innocence like you have in America and, so, and there's like a 99.7% conviction rate. And so that when you go on trial, they, they stick you in a cage. And so, um, and, they, and on this particular occasion, they allowed the television cameras into the courtroom so that um, they filmed the richest man in Russia sitting in a cage. And so one by one by one, um, these oligarchs at the end of the summer in 2004, they, they went to Putin and they said, Vladimir, 
what do we have to do so we don't sit in that cage? And he said, oh, it's very straightforward, 50%. And when, and when I say 50%, this wasn't 50% for the Russian government or 50% for the presidential administration of Russia. This was 50% for Vladimir Putin. Wow. And at that moment in time, Putin became the richest man in the world. How much is Putin worth? Well, um, everyone's got a different estimate, and, and it's hard to prove because the money never is in his own name. It's in the name of the, these oligarchs. But my estimate is he's worth uh, around $200 billion, which make, would make him the richest private individual in the world. Well, when we come back, we're going to talk more about the current state of affairs between Vladimir Putin, Donald Trump, Russia, and the United States, and also why you are still so embroiled in Russian affairs, and that has to do with your former lawyer, who is now dead. We'll be back with Bill Browder right after this. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters— I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the campaign moment right now, wherever you're listening. Hey, guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh? A redwood forest would be cool. Ski slopes! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. We're back with Bill Browder, who is the author of Red Notice, a true story of high finance murder and one man's fight for justice, a real expert on Russia who can help us understand the pitfalls and perils and perhaps even benefits of a closer relationship with Russia, which is in the news these days. But before we tackle that, Bill, In 2005, you were detained at an airport in Moscow. You were declared a threat to national security and were banned from the country. Um, That must have been pretty terrifying, was it? It was terrifying for sure. When when you get um, expelled from a country that you've lived in for 10 years and where you're the largest foreign investor, um, that's a big shock. But I knew that that's, that's a minor sanction compared to what they could have done. The Russians turn on you, they tend to do so with extreme prejudice. When you say extreme pe- prejudice, is that a euphemism for, like, you're toast, you're dead? Well, there there are sort of three levels of, of what could have happened to me. They could have killed me, they could have taken me hostage and put me in prison, or they could have expelled me. And in, the, in that little continuum, being expelled is hardly a sanction compared to the other two options. After you left Russia, you hired a local lawyer, Sergei Magnitsky, to represent your interests as you were winding down your investment fund there. What happened to him? Well, so what happened was um, about 18 months after I was expelled from Russia, 
uh, 25 police officers raided my office in Moscow, and they seized all of our corporate documents, our stamps and seals and certificates for running our companies. And so I went out and I hired the smartest lawyer I knew in Russia. It was at the time a 35-year-old lawyer named Sergei Magnitsky. He worked for an American law firm in Moscow. I hired Sergei to help me investigate what these people were up to and to try to stop whatever they were doing. So Sergei goes and investigates. And he comes back about uh, six months later and he says, I figured it out and it's not pretty. And basically what Sergei had discovered was that after we had sold all of our stock in Russia and got all the money out, we had a big profit. We had a billion dollars of profits and we paid $230 million of taxes to the Russian government. And what Sergei had discovered was that the people who had raided our offices used those documents to steal our companies, and then they used our stolen companies to go back to the tax authorities and, they, and to say, all those taxes paid last year, that was a mistake. We'd like the money back. They applied for a $230 million illegal tax refund, and the very next day, it was approved and paid out. So essentially, government officials used your investment fund to steal $230 million for themselves. And, and, and they were stealing it from their own government. They weren't stealing from me. They were, this is money we already paid to the Russian governments. So they were stealing it from themselves. But it wasn't like the government from one pocket of the government to the other. This was from the government to a bunch of corrupt officials. What happened when Sergei tried to expose this, though? So when Sergei testified against these guys, he was waiting for the um, bad guys to get arrested. Instead of the bad guys being arrested, about six weeks after he testified, they came to his home at eight in the morning um, in front of his wife and two children, searched his apartment, and then arrested him. They put him in pretrial detention, where he was then tortured to get him to withdraw his testimony. They put him in cells with 14 inmates and eight beds, and left the lights on 24 hours a day to impose sleep deprivation. They put him in cells with no heat and no window panes in December in Moscow, so he nearly froze to death. They put him in cells with no toilet, uh, just a hole in the floor where the sewage would bubble up. And they were doing all of this to try to get him to retract his testimony against the police officers, and they wanted to get him to sign a false confession to say that he stole the $230 million. So how long was he imprisoned, and when did you learn of his fate? Um, after about six months, he got sick. He lost 40 pounds. He got terrible pains in his stomach, and he was diagnosed as having pancreatitis and gallstones and needing an operation. He and his lawyers wrote 20 different requests to every different branch of the justice system in Russia, begging for medical attention. All of his requests were either ignored or denied. And then on the night of November 16th, 2009, a year after he had been arrested, or nearly a year after he'd been arrested, he went into critical condition. And so they uh, put him in an ambulance, sent him over to a different prison facility. But instead of, when he gets to the new place, instead of putting him in the emergency room, they put him in an isolation cell, they chained him to a bed, and then eight riot guards with rubber batons beat him until he died at the age of 37, leaving a wife and two children. Just hearing of his experience is horrifying, and it must have been devastating for you to feel so powerless in this situation. I got the news the very next morning, and it was the most traumatic, heartbreaking, life-changing news I could have ever gotten. Sergei Magnitsky was killed because he was my lawyer. If he hadn't been my lawyer, he would have still been alive. 
And after getting over the absolute sort of shock of the whole situation, when I had enough composure to, to think about it clearly, it was obvious that I only had one choice in life going forward, which was to put aside everything else I was doing um, and get justice for Sergey. And and just to provide people the kind of the background while you were beginning your effort to get justice for Sergey, the U.S. under President Obama in 2009 was embarking on the famous Russian reset. So there wasn't a lot of interest in the administration at the time to go after the Russians, right? Yeah, so we said to ourselves, well, we're not going to be able to get justice for murder in Russia, but we could certainly try to stop these people from using traveling to the West and using the banking system and buying assets and so on and so forth. And that's when I went to Washington to tell this story. And and that's when I encountered um, what you just described before called the Obama reset, where Obama had come in as president and he wanted to, quote, reset relations with Russia. Yeah, so just to give some context, uh, at this point, Putin was no longer president. He was prime minister, and he was succeeded as president by this guy, Medvedev, who the West, including the United States, felt would be more cooperative. And in fact, the Obama people to this day argue that the first several years of the reset were really productive in terms of getting a new arms control agreement, helping with the supply route in and out of Afghanistan, uh, pressuring the Iranians and the North Koreans on nuclear issues. So what's your response to that? Um, well, the, the, the answer is they got some of those things, um, and, and they had to sacrifice a lot in order to get that, including human rights and um, uh, the uh, security of, of uh, NATO allies in Poland and the Czech Republic and places like that. Um, and so it was, it was a um, sort of narrow decision which um, which had a lot of ugly consequences, and it didn't last that long. Eventually, they realized that um, uh, Russia and America's interests were too too divergent. But that was the that was the um, environment in which I was trying to convince Washington to do something about the Magnitsky um, murder, and um, it was an uphill battle for sure. You didn't find a receptive audience, but finally, you did because the Magnitsky Act was passed in 2012. What exactly did that do? Well, it's interesting because while the president, at the time Obama, didn't want to do anything that would ruffle the feathers of Russia, um, there was another center of power, which was Congress. And I told the story that I've just shared with you to a Democratic senator from Maryland, Benjamin Cardin, and a Republican senator from Arizona, John McCain, and I said, can we, can we put a law in place um, named after Sergei Magnitsky, um, which would punish the people who killed him and punish people who do similar types of things? And they came up with what's now known as the Magnitsky Act, which imposes visa sanctions and asset freezes on the people who do this kind of stuff. And it also puts their names on what's called the U.S. Treasury Sanctions List. And by, by once your name is on that list, just next door to ISIS and Al-Qaeda terrorists and Colombian drug barons and, and so on and so forth. And in spite of the, of the fact that um, Putin was apoplectic about this, he was truly enraged and furious. And in spite of the fact that this reset exists, uh, President Obama uh, really had no choice based on the popularity in the Congress. And he signed it into law. Um, there are now uh, 45 people on the Magnitsky list who are all sanctioned, many of them 
intimately involved in Sergei's um, torture and murder. How do you know Vladimir Putin was so personally enraged by this stuff? Well, we know because while this was going through, uh, he, he had a press conference, literally the, the same days that this was happening. He got something like seven questions at his annual press conference about the Magnitsky Act, and he got more and more agitated, more and more aggressive, and, and more and more aggressive towards the act, towards America, and towards me personally. And shortly after that, um, they passed what they call the Anti-Magnitsky Act in Russia, in which they banned the adoption of Russian orphans by American families. And I should point out that the only orphans that the Russians let American families adopt were sick orphans. And American families with open hearts and open arms would take these sick children in and nurse them back to health. And he banned them from adopting these sick children, which was effectively sentencing their own orphans, some of their own orphans, to death in order to protect his own corrupt officials. You're in a very unique position, Bill, given your background and your experiences in Russia, to talk about what is happening here in the United States and really around the world when it comes to how we see not only Vladimir Putin, but Russia itself. So what do you make of this coziness, some say bromance, between Donald Trump and Vladimir Putin? What is that about? Well, um, what we know is that um, Putin really doesn't like a few things. He doesn't like the NATO, which is this military treaty that the United States has with a number with 28 other countries. He doesn't like that because he knows he would lose a war against NATO, and so he'd rather not have that. He doesn't like the European Union because he doesn't like a whole bunch of countries together um, dictating how he can't use gas as a weapon. Um, and he didn't like America telling him what he could and couldn't do. And that was his status quo with Obama. And he thought that if, if um, Hillary Clinton was elected, then, then that would more or less be the same thing. And so he wanted somebody other than Hillary Clinton being elected where there was a possibility of, of that not being the same thing. And he was particularly excited by the warm words coming out of Donald Trump's mouth where he was saying how, how much he admired Putin and so on and so forth. And so you can see the champagne corks popping on election night in Russia. He's under the belief that he'll be able to achieve some of these objectives within a Trump presidency. So this is well, a new era for Russia in his view. And just let the record show, you do not think Vladimir Putin is a good guy in any way, shape, or form. If you had 30 seconds to explain why you think Putin's a schmuck, how would you do that? Well, um, I've seen with my own eyes and with evidence that Putin is a criminal. He's a criminal who's stolen an enormous amount of money from his country. Um, he's been involved directly in, in a conspiracy to cover up the murder of my lawyer, Sergei Magnitsky. He was personally involved in that. And I've seen how he's behaved. He's like Pablo Escobar, except he controls a country with nukes. And that's a very dangerous man to have in the world. You spoke earlier about the warm words that Donald Trump has for Vladimir Putin. What do you think is the explanation for that? You know, there's been a lot of discussion of this unconfirmed dossier that BuzzFeed put out, um, supposedly showing compromat or compromising information that the Russians have about well, I love when you Trump. speak Russian, Brian. <laughs> I do that just to pander to you. Uh, do you believe that stuff? And... 
Or, or do you think there's some ideological basis for Trump's fondness for Putin? Well, I, I think that we're going to end up knowing a lot more when we actually see what Trump decides to do. I mean, it's interesting because on one hand, Trump has muttered some, some very warm words towards Putin. On the other hand, he's staffed his most important national security jobs um, at the Defense Department and the CIA and the Homeland Security with absolute strong cold warriors. On the other hand, he appointed as Secretary of State one of the Americans who's closest to Vladimir Putin, and he's praised Putin probably more than any other world leader. You're talking about Rex Tillerson. Exactly. So don't we already know that he's going to make a strong effort to build closer ties with Putin? Well, so every president has done this from George Bush through Obama now to Trump, or tried to do this, I should say, and tried and failed. So Donald Trump presents himself as a deal maker. We already know what Putin wants from this deal. He wants sanctions lifted. He wants the end of NATO. He wants to break up the European Union. So the question is, what does Donald Trump get out of that? Well, he hasn't what does had, America he hasn't, get out of well, that? Well, Bill, he hasn't had exactly, you know, warm, fuzzy words about NATO. I mean, Donald Trump built much of his campaign saying that he wasn't a big fan of NATO and that the United States shouldn't pay to defend all these countries, you know, that we're not the world's policemen. So it seems to me that Putin and Trump are at least aligned on that. And they're also aligned way, on the collapse of the European Union because Trump has been one of the foremost American supporters of the, the Brexit effort. And he's also touted other countries in Europe leaving the European Union. So it seems like there's a tremendous amount of overlap in terms of their views. It does seem that way. And so the question is, what does Trump get in return? What about the notion of, of, of joining forces with Russia to fight ISIS? That's something that he has talked about a lot or did on the campaign trail. Well, that's a complete nonsense. Russia doesn't fight ISIS. Russia bombs the Syrian rebels um, who are trying to stop Assad. So R Russia is bombing children, civilians, women, hospitals. If we're going to join Russia, I, I, I pray we're not going to get sucked into bombing innocent civilians in Syria, because that would be the most horrific thing I could ever imagine. So why do you think Donald Trump has such a soft spot for Russia if we know they're not fighting ISIS, if we know that Putin's goals are very similar to others around the world who want to diminish American power? How do you explain it? I can't. There's no rational reason that I can see why he would do that. It doesn't make sense to me. Let me ask a simple, sophomoric, possibly stupid question that I think, I hope our listeners will appreciate. What is wrong with having a closer relationship with Russia? Couldn't we accomplish things together as, you know, a unified superpower rather than be competitive adversaries? Well, it, it sounds great if it was possible, but Putin is a bad actor. So Putin has just invaded he invaded Georgia in 2008. He invaded Ukraine um, in 2014. Um, he's at war in Europe. Um, he wants to expand his empire. This is the first time since the end of the Second World War that borders have been redrawn. He's committing war crimes in Syria by bombing women and children in hospitals. And so, I mean, everybody wishes that he'd be a good actor. If we could have a good relationship with a good actor, that would be a great thing. But should we allow him to destabilize the world and bring death and misery 
to people and to challenge the safety and security of Europe? I don't think so. I think that we know where that has led in the past. And unfortunately, this man can't be appeased. And so the only option we really have is to contain him. And if what Trump is proposing is to basically give him a free ride on all of his bad actions, then he'll, it will encourage him to take more of those. It sounds to me like he's an egomaniacal, power-hungry despot who cares only about himself. Is that an accurate characterization? And please don't give him my phone number. <laughs> well, what, what he is, is he started out being a massive kleptocrat where he stole like all the money from the people. When the people started grumbling, he started worrying about them turning on him and, and deposing him like the, like the people of Ukraine did of their leader, of their corrupt leader. And so he then started a war to distract them. And when, when sanctions were put in place, he then started another war in Syria. His main objective is to stay in power because he understands that if he's not in power, he'll lose his money, go to jail, and perhaps one of his enemies will kill him. And as such, staying in power is not such an easy thing to do in a place like Russia because a lot of other people that want it. And so the more, as time goes on, and the more difficult situations arise, the more he's got to become repressive in his own country and, and aggressive um, in foreign countries to keep his people distracted. Bill, critics of yours, more foreign policy realists, would say that your understandable distress over the killing of your former lawyer has blinded you to the subtleties of the relationship, that there are areas in which our two countries cooperate in arms control, in our efforts in Afghanistan, in containing Iran, and that if we have a purely adversarial relationship in which we're attacking and going after the leader of Russia at every turn, it hurts the interests of the United States around the world. Is it possible that Putin's Russia shouldn't be seen in black and white, but in shades of gray? Um, well, I mean, you can use whatever color analogies you want, but you've got a guy who will act aggressively using all tools to further his own interests. And so the question is, how do you keep him from using those tools in a way that's detrimental to our interests? And there are places where we have leverage and we have negotiating positions where he will negotiate with us, whether we're nice or whether we're mean. And there are places where we don't have leverage, where he will do whatever he wants. And if you meet any person in the military, serious person in the military in the West, and discuss Vladimir Putin, anyone, they will tell you that you need to contain him, that, that you can't give him any freedom of movement because whatever you give him, he'll take that and, and we can't get it back. And I'm long over my emotional distress with Vladimir Putin, and I've seen how he operates, and I'm just speaking in a calm, sober way, that this man needs to be contained. And how we go about interacting with him while we contain him, sure, we can talk. Sure, we can negotiate. And sure, some of those things that we discussed um, can be negotiated. But you can't give him the latitude to go and take over countries and do his bad actions, because the more latitude you give him, the more trouble we'll be in. Does the notion of Secretary of State Rex Tillerson give you pause? given his ties to Russia, given the photographs we've seen of him sitting next to Vladimir Putin? Well, I, I wasn't a great fan of most of his answers in his confirmation hearing. He was very um, equivocal about sanctions. He was saying, you know, I, don't, I, I won't commit to keeping them in place. The, the only thing he did say, which, which I liked, was that he was ready to um, 
keep the Magnitsky sanctions, which he has no power actually to repeal because they're an act of Congress. But I didn't like the answers he, he was giving because um, it was clear that he was trying to leave himself as much room for movement as he could um, to take get rid of them if that was what the policy was. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm scared that he's going to capitulate to Russia, which would be a bad thing. Bill, can you just explain briefly what the sanctions do exactly and why they're biting the Russians so hard? Well, there's two types of sanctions. <clears throat> there are sanctions against high-level individuals, targeted personal sanctions, freezing assets and banning visas. And then there are sanctions which are called sectoral sanctions, which are sanctions which prevent Western American and European banks from lending money to Russian companies. And both sanctions are highly effective in their own special way. As I mentioned before, um, there's a very small number of oligarchs who control almost all the economic assets of Russia. And Putin, by the way, is a partner with those oligarchs. And so basically, if you sanction a small number of people with, with asset freezes and visa bans, that personally touches Putin, and he hates it. And it makes his assets less valuable, and it makes his own personal financial interests hit. Secondly, the sectoral sanctions means that Russia can't borrow money. And Russia needs to borrow money in order to roll over loans, et cetera, et cetera. And so as a result of them not being able to borrow money, as a result of oil prices being down, they've depleted huge amounts of money from their national reserves and from their welfare funds, et cetera, in order to pay for things. And the combination of these two things absolutely infuriates, weakens, and upsets Putin. Here's another question from one of our listeners in Ambler, Pennsylvania. Let's listen. Hello, I saw Katie's post about what questions do you have about Russia. My question is more about Donald Trump's ties to Russia. Now that the transition has occurred and the inauguration has occurred, who will hold Trump's team accountable to find ties between the campaign and Russia? And will it still be possible now that he has control of those government agencies that actually um, do the investigating? I have been asking this question without stop and have not gotten an answer. I would really appreciate it if you would take the question. Thank you so much. So, Bill, who will hold Donald Trump's team accountable uh, to make sure that the country is aware of any ties either currently or in the past between the campaign and Russia? Well, I, I think it's it's a little bit overdramatic to say that nobody in Congress um, will do anything about this. When, when, when Obama was in Congress and he didn't, and he didn't want to do anything tough on Russia, the Democrats, um, uh, uh, led by a very liberal Democrat from, from Maryland, Benjamin Cardin, you know, acted against Obama in passing the Magnitsky Act. And I know many Republicans in Congress, um, that, that if there is a real issue, if, if, if our relationship with Russia is harming our national interests, they're not going to go along with that. So, I don't think it's as dire a situation as as um, as that um, that person's question was, but um, there is some definite truth in that if you control the levers of law enforcement and the levers of power, it's a lot lot harder for the people in those agencies to um, act against the interests of power. So hopefully, um, the checks and balances, if they're needed, will will be working. And then furthermore, we don't know what's going to happen in the next congressional election. Maybe the Republicans won't be dominating both houses of Congress. Things change very quickly in these types of situations. So and we I, I don't think that the world is going to fall apart um, uh, today. We should note that the questions about Trump's team and their connections to Russia 
aren't limited just to Rex Tillerson, who's probably going to be Secretary of State. They also include Michael Flynn, whom Trump has appointed to be National Security Advisor, which is an enormously powerful position. It's the person in the White House who briefs the president on national security every day, who mediates disputes between defense, state, CIA, and others. And there were these calls between Flynn and the Russian ambassador, which are now under investigation. So it seems like he's picking the Americans who are just known for their extraordinary closeness to Russia. Does that give you any additional concern about the direction that Trump is going to take? Well, um, uh, you know, we, we, we've talked about Tillerson, we've talked about Flynn, but what about Mattis? Um, what about Pompeo? What about the, the new Homeland Security Secretary? And even with Flynn, I've heard both sides of the story. I've heard that he has no illusions about Russia. I've also seen pictures of him um, at a Russia Today um, party with Putin. So, I mean, it's very easy to feel worried and emotional, and, and I know a lot of people do, and I, I'm looking for every signal and sign of which way this thing is going to go. But I think it's a little bit too early to start saying that this is all a big, you know, takeover by Russia of our administration. But let's see what they actually do, and they might not. It might not be so bad. Maybe it will be. I don't know. But but I think we're we're, we're sort of jumping the gun a little bit until we see what the policies will be. Perhaps you can't read the tea leaves. Having said that, Bill, the notion that the Russians meddled in U.S. elections. I mean, isn't that something to be concerned about? Or have I seen the Manchurian candidate too many times? Well, there's two things. One is, did they meddle in the election? The answer is yes. It's been pretty clear. The second is, is there any quid pro quo for their meddling in the election? <clears throat> and that we don't know the answer to. What do you mean quid pro quo from from the United States? It's, so so it, it, does Trump owe them anything if if they did? But what about there, just, there, I'm sorry to interrupt, but... What about just the whole idea of them effing with our democratic process? I mean, shouldn't shouldn't they have to pay something for that? And what about the notion of increasing sanctions? And I guess, didn't Lindsey Graham say this weekend, Brian, that 75 senators would vote for some kind of punishment for the Russians meddling in the elections? Yeah, he was trying to send a signal to Trump that the sanctions pressure should go up, not down. Well, I, I agree with that. And I think that, that Russia should be sanctioned, punished uh, uh, with great ferocity. And and I, I should point out that, that sanctions work. People are all saying, well, sanctions, you know, the Russians haven't modified their behavior from sanctions. Let me tell you something. Putin wakes up every morning, prays for sanctions to be lifted and goes to bed every night praying for sanctions to be lifted. It affects him personally, it affects him profoundly, and he doesn't like these sanctions. And they were bad actors, they should be punished. And I hope very much that this is where our checks and balances come in. If there's like some kind of warmth for whatever reason from, from Trump, that Congress, which is a separate section of power under the Constitution, will act to severely punish Russia for their bad actions because there needs to be consequences every time they do something bad so they don't do bad things going forward. We talked about the Russians meddling in the American presidential election last year. Are you concerned about Russian meddling in the French and German elections that are happening this year and electing pro-Putin candidates as a result? Uh, I'm concerned, and, and everybody in Europe is concerned, um, because the Russians have gotten good at this stuff. They're good at fake news, they're good at hacking, and they're good at manipulating the outcomes and even funding all sorts of fringe parties to pull people away from the center. 
and, and, and by the way, it doesn't cost Putin nearly, uh, you know, it costs him nothing uh, to, to do this election manipulation compared to any kind of military adventures. And so he, he's out there using his technology fast and furious, hoping that he can upset the political balance all over the world and be able to achieve his objectives of breaking up the European Union and breaking up NATO. Russia is clearly rising right now. What will happen remains to be seen. But is Putin here to stay? Because I know he's enormously popular in Russia right now. What is his approval rating? Brian, Bill, do either of you know? 88%. 88%. I mean, that is just unheard of. And so, 30 years in prison if you say that you disapprove. Exactly. If, you're, if you get a call from a stranger who says, do you support Vladimir Putin or not, what's your answer going to be? I mean, what I find most strange about this 88% is not the 88%, but who, who, uh, who are these 12% people who say they don't support Putin? They're in prison. <laughs> <laughs> but do you see him going anywhere? Well, his objective is to stay in power until the end of his life. He has no other plans, and he really has to use every tool at his disposal to make sure that that's, that happens. And he's very smart about this stuff. He doesn't, he doesn't have to, he, he's not constrained by the same things we are. He has no, he has no, uh, he has to worry about being elected. He doesn't have to worry about parliament. He doesn't have to worry about the courts. He doesn't have to worry about the press. None of the stuff that a normal world leader has to worry about, he has to worry about. And so he has degrees of freedom. And the, his biggest degree of freedom is that he, he has no morals. He will kill any number of people to stay in power. And so, with a man with that, with all the tools, with with no morals and with no constraints, he will stay in power unless something very dramatic happens. Well, it's a very scary time, and certainly this has been a very chilling conversation. So we don't end on such a terrifying note. I mean, what is your advice for Donald Trump and for Americans who are concerned about his growing use and abuse of power? And I'm talking about Putin's growing use and abuse of power, although some might argue that Donald Trump is doing the same thing. Well, if Donald Trump really wants to be a patriotic American and he wants to bring America first, he should use his strength and his eccentricity and his unconventional approach to completely um, contain Vladimir Putin. That would be the right thing to do. That would be the patriotic thing to do. And that would be the thing that, that brings safety to, to American people. Vladimir Putin is a much more dangerous adversary than ISIS can ever be, and the right thing to do, and the thing that will eventually be done by Trump or his ultimate successor will be to surround Putin because he's the, he's the guy whose interests are completely adverse to ours. Bill Browder, as I said, it's a, it's a very, very interesting, important conversation. I think Russia has been mentioned as often as the United States in recent weeks. You hear Vladimir Putin's name almost as often as Donald Trump's. So clearly, this is going to be a major story, I think, in the weeks, months, possibly years to come. This strange relationship uh, between our two countries, and we really appreciate your perspective on it today. And we really recommend your book, Red Notice, which reads like a thriller, but it is a, a true story and a pretty remarkable one. In fact, they're making a movie out of your book, aren't they, Bill? Um, a movie is in the process, and, and hopefully um, that will lead to 
many, many more Americans and people all around the world seeing Russia and Vladimir Putin for um, what, what they really are. Well, Bill Bratter, again, thanks so much for your time and best of luck to you. Thank you. Before we go, which is our version of Steve Harvey's Just One More Thing, Brian, you and I noted during the inaugural ball Donald Trump's rather strange selection of song for his first dance with Melania Trump, with the First Lady. Yeah, he picked two songs that have really good titles, Frank Sinatra's My Way, Whitney Houston's I Will Always Love You, which written was by Dolly written Parton. by Dolly Parton, exactly. But if you listen to the first verse of My Way, for example, it sends a kind of a different message. Are you asking me to sing it, Brian? Give the people what they want, Katie. And now the end is near, and so I face the final curtain. My friends, I'll say it clear. I'll state my case, of which I'm certain. There is like a little Judy Garland there. It's at a the little end, bit but I of think... a. I, I don't know if I would want to start my presidency with the words, and now the end is near, and so I face the final curtain. Would you? No, nor uh, if I should stay, I would only be in your way, so I'll go, but I know I'll think of you every step of the way, which is the first part of I Will Always Love You. So I I think they need maybe a little more uh, diligence on this. If we could pick another one for the Trumps, what would we pick? I think I would go back to Franklin Roosevelt's favorite campaign song. You know what that was, Katie? Happy Days Are Here Again. Exactly. Happy days are here again for at least half the country. The skies above are clear again, so let's sing a song of cheer again. Happy days are here again, but nobody wants to hear me sing. Yes, Brian, please don't ever do that again. Oh my God, that's the scary voice. As always, our thanks to Gianna Palmer for producing the show and Jared O'Connell for engineering and mixing it. Thanks this week to Joe Miller for production assistance in London. And I have to say, Mark Phillips, I love our theme music. I listen to it when I shower. Not really. But also, in addition to me, uh, Mitch Semmel and Brian Goldsmith are our executive producers. And remember, you can email us at comments at currickpodcast.com or find me on social media. I'm on it way too much, people. I'm Katie Couric on Twitter and Instagram and katie.couric on Snapchat because I am so hip and jiggy with the youngsters. And because I'm not hip and jiggy, I'm only on Twitter at at GoldsmithB. Best of all, you can rate and review us on iTunes. We'd really appreciate it if you would subscribe to the show as well. That helps more listeners to find it. And we will talk to you next time. Thanks so much for listening. Bye, everybody. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. 
Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. You deserve a moment to yourself every single day. And a delicious bite of a Keebler Sandies can give you that comforting pause. Because there's nothing like a weekend pause with the melt-in-your-mouth magic of a Keebler Sandies. This magic is baked into simple shortbread cookies by Ernie and the Keebler Elves. So as life continues to fly by, make the most of your me moment. Take a pause and enjoy a Keebler Sandies.